So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1330, The Myth of Imposter Syndrome and Racial Disparities that Feed the Pay Gap with Ruchika Tulshin, author of Inclusion on Purpose. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. If you are in a space where you do not belong and it is clear that no matter what you do, you're bringing your A game, you're doing all the work, you show up prepared, you're over prepared. And when you show up and you know you're not going to get the deserve, you're not going to get the value and the respect that you deserve, it is much better to walk out the door. Have you ever felt like you don't belong? Have you ever experienced imposter syndrome? I'm raising both of my hands right now. It happened to me as a kid. It's happened to me many times as a woman. Our guest today is going to give us a lot of help with that. Ruchika Tulshin is an award-winning inclusion strategist. She's a former business journalist. She's the CEO of Candor, which works with organizations to create diverse teams and inclusive cultures. And very excitingly, she has a new book out this month, Women's History Month. It's called Inclusion on Purpose, an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. In the book, there's a whole section where she discusses pay inequality for women, specifically women of color, as well as salary transparency, inclusive job offers, and circumstances when inclusion matters more than pay. We touch on all of this in our conversation, as well as why leaning in doesn't work and why dismantling structural bias does. Here is Ruchika Tulshan. Ruchika Tulshan, welcome to So Money. Woo! Thank you, Farnoosh. So excited to be here. It's such an honor. You were saying before we were going live that you are so excited to talk about money. I could see the expression on your face light up. What is it about money that makes you so excited, in particular women and money? Oh, such a good question, Farnoosh. I think the the reality is, and I, I get really frustrated sometimes with the narrative that like women don't think about money, we don't care about money, or if we do, we care about, you know, there's all these horrible tropes of, you know, women as gold diggers or women as, you know, trying to get their hands on other people, i.e. men's money. Whereas the reality is, I think women are really smart about money. There's good data to show that we make good decisions. We're really balanced when it comes to risk, especially in taking risk. Women decide, um, you know, when we when we when we decide to do something, I think we've got this chock full of ambition, and especially women of color. And the challenge that I think we don't talk about enough is what are those barriers like, right? Like, what is it like when you have so much of ambition, but not enough opportunity? Mm -hmm. And so for me, when it comes to money, all I think about is how can we create a world where women's ambition, our desire for more money, our desire to do good things with our money gets as much recognition and play as the, you know, the way that men's um, ambitions yes. and desires around money gets that's that play, you know? 
Well, you teed us up very well to talk about your new book. The book is called Inclusion on Purpose, an Intersectional Approach to Creating a Culture of Belonging at Work. In the run-up to this book, you and a co-author wrote a couple of pieces for Harvard Business Review, the first of which went viral. It was like Harvard's um, one of their top read articles of in history, top 100 articles of in history. And it was about, uh, the title was Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. Um, which I encourage everybody to read. I'll put the link in our show notes. I listened to you and your co-author, Jody Ann Beret, talk about this on the Brene Brown podcast. Everyone should listen to that as well. Talking about the genesis of this, of this theory, this thesis that you have that imposter syndrome, while everybody experiences it, has been largely sold as a false syndrome to women as a means to almost like intentionally oppress us. Like we talk about systems as if they were accidental. This is an intentional thing. Um, tell us what you meant by stop telling women they have imposter syndrome and who's they? Farnoosh, thank you so much. So stop telling women they have imposter syndrome is is really a manifestation and a culmination of almost a decade of just feeling very frustrated, maybe even longer. I used to, you know, I was, I was writing about women in the workplace for a number of years before that I was, you know, a business journalist and I was covering all these wealthy organizations and mostly male leaders, um, you know, in the media. And what really started frustrating me all this while is the the reality that there's so much of this syndrome lean in narrative women don't negotiate we're not confident like all of this sold to women absolutely to oppress us and that article i would say for me in my mind is over a decade in the making right it was really this thought that i am i do not feel imposter syndrome and the times where i have felt unsure of myself or like I lacked confidence, there was a common thread in those situations. And the, and the thread was the situation. The thread was being around people who overlooked me or underestimated me or told me in very subtle and overt ways that I was not good enough, that I didn't belong. And the more conversations I would have with especially women of color, who, by the way, for most of us, we've been navigating being underestimated and overlooked for all our lives, right? So when I would have these conversations in groups of women of color, again, largely the conversation we were having was, no, I, I don't really, I don't subscribe to this idea of imposter syndrome. Or when I feel it, it's kind of, it feels really exacerbated in situations like if I work in a white dominated workplace, or I'm mostly doing things only with male clients and working only with male clients. And there was, there was this sort of culmination of, again, that feeling of I'm being sold something that doesn't really fit. And yet it's so pervasive. It's everywhere. And that's why I'm really excited. I'm really honored that this article that Jody Ann Bury and I collaborated on, that it has been read so many times. It, again, did not expect it to go viral, but it means so much that it has. Right. And hopefully that means more of us can push back mm-hmm. on this narrative. Your platform is all about creating this culture of belonging at work. But what if they don't want you? Am I supposed to just try so hard to make it work? What is my responsibility as a woman who is feeling as though she's being oppressed at work, whether it's because 
you know, I get this false narrative around imposter syndrome or people I'm, I'm on Instagram and it's like, just take out the word, just in your email, <laughs> ask for more, put up a good fight. It's like after a certain point, isn't it just better to leave? Mm, yes. And your responsibility to answer your question is really only to yourself and to others like you. It is not to try and fit yourself into a workplace that has no space for you. And I made that mistake. So many women of color I spoke to for the book made that mistake. And the cost is far too high. It really is. So the responsibility in my mind is to yourself and especially around all this bogus advice. I mean, removing the just in your email, the one that really bugs me <laughs> is sorry. I mean, I grew up outside this country. I, you know, and, and I also spent time in the United Kingdom where you can say sorry in a really nasty way, by the way, <laughs> you know, there is a very, very passive aggressive way to say mm-hmm. sorry, to get your point across when people are being jerks, that are, that is universally understood. So, t- you know, telling women to stop saying sorry and apologizing is another pet peeve of mine. Mm-hmm. And so, just to run out, just to run out, essentially, I feel like I have like a, mm-hmm. you know, my mind is exploding talking with you, Farnoosh, honestly. Oh. But if but if I'm if I really if I really wanted to like have one piece of advice, the TLDR of yes. our conversation mm-hmm. is if you are in a space where you do not belong. And it is clear that no matter what you do, you're bringing your A game, you're doing all the work, you show up prepared, you're over prepared. And when you show up and you know, you're not going to get the deserve, you're not going to get the value and the respect that you deserve. It is much better to walk out the door. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I think that we want to feel as though we're sticking around and fighting. And I'm, I, my whole thing is like, you can leave and still put up a fight. You yes. can leave and then go create change someplace else. And I have had experienced that so often in my life where you have this fear of rejection and mm-hmm. you internalize it and you think I'm doing something wrong. It's like, since I was a kid, you know, I have a weird name. I only have one brow. <laughs> I'm clapping. I'm clapping because you're, you're, you're talking with my language. I tried to change my name. I tried to like dress a certain way. I, and all these things to conform. And then ultimately we moved and that was a blessing in disguise, right? We moved to a, a different part of the country that was more embracing and inclusive and diverse. And all of a sudden I was being celebrated and I had no idea why. Mm-hmm. And then I was experiencing imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Talk about irony. Mm-hmm. That's me as a kid. But as a woman, the costs are higher because you, to your point, you stay in work environments that are toxic mm-hmm. that might be paying your bills, but are causing other kinds of hard expenses elsewhere in your life. We touched on this responsibility that at, that we as women have at work to ourselves. Your book, Inclusion on Purpose, is really more addressed to everybody else, right? Like, what can everybody else do? Thank you. Because so much of the advice has been targeted to women. We got a lot on our plates. What can companies do? What can culture do? What can policymakers do? Lean in. Lean in everyone else who does not identify as a woman with privilege and power in the workplace. Anyone who has felt underestimated and overlooked and found themselves underrepresented, you need to lean in, essentially. Like the lean in movement did a lot of harm 
to the idea and the reality that for so many women, we are facing impossible circumstances. We just need to look at the numbers of the number of women who left during the pandemic, right? Who left workplaces during the pandemic because they just could not put up with systems that were exclusionary and biased and completely unrepresentative of their realities. Um, so yeah, my the book I wrote was kind of, my hope was it would be a twofer, right? That one, yes, it would engage and catalyze and hopefully motivate people who are on the fence, who have privilege and power to step up and say, okay, you know, thanks for writing this playbook. Let, let me take some of these actions and these ideas and see what I can do with it. And then the other part of it was I also wrote in many ways, a love letter to myself for all those years that I put up with situations where I didn't belong, where I was told that the reason why I wasn't progressing is because I didn't lean in hard enough, because if only I negotiated better, if only I had an easier to pronounce names, a name, maybe then I would get the call back for the job, right? If, you know, if Asian women are so, so, so good at like keeping things running smoothly, I don't know about leadership roles, right? And, and this mm-hmm. in many ways is the love letter I needed to myself. I needed for myself when I was putting up with situations in the workplace that, you know, unfortunately, so many women I spoke to for the book and even since the book has come out, um, this is for, for myself and for them to validate our experiences. Because you know what really exacerbates imposter syndrome? Thinking that you're alone, thinking that it's yeah. just you, that it's only you. Um, and I hope this book is, you know, a counter narrative to that. We should have been friends when I was little. Imagine the great friendship we would have had. All the bonds. <laughs> Farnoosh and Ruchika. In fact, can I tell you, Farnoosh, when I, I, I can't, I probably, I, I don't even know the first time that I came across your work because you're so prolific, but it was at least like five years ago. It was at least five years, I probably longer. And I read your name and I was like, yes, <laughs> Farnoosh Turab, yes. You know what I mean? I mean, oh, I'm man. a um, Like, can you imagine this stuff that I heard growing up? I'm so sorry for that. But you know what? Anyone listening, weird is good. Yes. Be your weird self. Yes. It, it is so rewarding. It, you, will, you will appreciate it one day if you're not already. A little bit about you. I want to give people a little bit about your background. You are an award-winning inclusion strategist and speaker, obviously. Um, your company is called Candor, and it works with organizations to create diverse teams, inclusive cultures. What are you seeing right now in the workplace? Are companies getting the message? Are you optimistic? I am optimistic. I know I started our conversation with, oh my gosh, this is what's lacking today. And this is what women, you know, this is how we get mischaracterized. And this is what we're dealing with. All of that is true. And I feel more optimistic than I have ever felt in the past. And I think it's for a couple of reasons. One is I think that there's a real tribe and solidarity that's being formed among women, especially women of color. And even as I write in my book, women of color are not a monolith. We have so many different journeys, immigration journeys, and, um, you know, cultures and backgrounds and languages and and the way we sort of present. Um, but what I feel very excited about is how there is an opportunity here to build solidarity, 
um, as women of color, as a political and social identity. And the fact that someone like you and I can sit here and have this conversation and influence and motivate people and let people know you're not alone. That's really exciting for me. Cause again, I remember a time where I really thought it was just me. So that's what makes me optimistic on that end. What makes me optimistic on the other end is I actually am hearing a lot more from leaders, from companies for a variety of reasons, right? There are people who definitely, you know, they're like, it's the right thing to do. There's absolutely no other way to look at it. And I'm going to take personal responsibility. And I'm really lucky to have a couple of clients who really think that way. Like they don't want the data. They don't care about the numbers. They're like, it's the right thing to do. It's it's what I want to do. And no question, I'm going to advocate and I'm going to fight. And those are the best clients, by the way. The other, the, the other, the, the folks who are sort of on the fence or along, you know, sort of the journey in some way are saying to me, we are trying to recruit millennials. We're trying to retain our millennials. We're thinking about Gen Z, um, you know, who really care about inclusion. How do we do this? Well, how do we do this from a talent management strategy? How do we do this from an innovation strategy? How do we do this from a growth strategy? And that's that's fine too, right? At the end of the day, many of our corporations talk about money. We are we do focus on the bottom line, right? Many corporations do. And so whichever sort of perspective you hold on it, the fact that I'm hearing words like anti-racism, like what are your pronouns? You know, what are, you know, how do we pronounce your name correctly? These little, little, little things really add up and make a meaningful mm-hmm. difference. But show me the money, Ruchika. Show me the money too. I've had many conversations with DE&I experts on this podcast where we talk about this concept of window dressing. And, you know, it's great that if you're on a Zoom call and the head of HR has she, her next to her Mm -hmm. name, but like, then you go and have a conversation about pay pay scale or pay band. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not as inviting and it's not as welcoming. How do you, especially as a person of color, as a woman of color, navigate the pay gap at work? As we know, this is much more severe for women of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is kind of related back to the point you were making. If you know for sure that you're making less money than your white counterpart and you aren't getting a good answer about why, I really think you need to take your skills elsewhere. Now, the thing that I'm excited about and optimistic about, on the other hand, is there is legislation coming down the pike, which makes me excited, right? So New York City, a few other places have passed laws where you need to have a salary range on a job. Um, California is really has an amazing bill currently in their legislature, which is essentially around you know, sort of the most widespread pay equity, pay transparency um, information out there, and hopefully it'll pass. And I think we're at the stage where, again, the ways that we were oppressed and we were told, like, you don't have any power to speak up, you know, don't speak up and, you know, be, be grateful for what you have. I think we're at a time right now where we really cannot afford to do that anymore. And that makes mm-hmm. me excited. What is your message for, and I'm going to say this in quotes, the white men and women? I had a reader, a listener write in and she said, I don't like when you say white men, Farnoosh. And this is a, this is a black woman. And she's like, I think it puts everyone in these buckets and then it makes people sort of against a certain group of people. And that's kind of not, let's not moving the needle forward. I mean, first of all, what do you think of that? You know, like um, I'm guilty of it. I'm married to a white man and I find myself saying things like, 
you know, I saw all the white men making money with podcasts and I wanted Mm -hmm. to also, it's a fact, but that in that can sometimes feel like I'm unhappy mm-hmm. <laughs> with white men. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, generally I love white mm-hmm. men. So how do I, how do I talk about this in a way that doesn't alienate people? You look at systems, not individuals. And I really had to hone in on this because I, you, until very recently, until I, you know, had this book launch coming up, I was teaching mm-hmm. at Seattle university part-time. I was a journalism professor. And of course I had white guys, white women and men in my class, Right. And I never want to create the kind of classroom that sometimes I grew up with where I felt like my voice wasn't being heard, where I definitely heard racist things being said about what Indian people were capable of and whatnot. And I definitely don't want to create a classroom. I did not want to create a classroom where white men and women would come to my class and feel unsafe. So I started off every class with my framing that, listen, this what we're talking about here is not white people as individuals, but as a system, whiteness as an oppressive system, white supremacy. When I say gender inequality, I'm not saying you guy there in the corner, you're at fault. I'm saying it's the patriarchy that we need to overcome and dismantle that system, right? When I talk Mm -hmm. about heteronormativity and the fact that we are homophobic in our society, I'm not turning to straight people, myself included, and saying, it's me individually that is being blamed for this. It's about creating a system where we, sorry, is that, there's like a huge truck going by. So, okay. So it's about creating a system or it's it's more about dismantling a system which allows all of this to proliferate. Now, I I do want to say, I think think one thing that I think is important here is the fact that until more individual white men and white women do take responsibility to dismantle the system of whiteness and patriarchy, we are not going to be able to make the type of change that we aspire to. Right. Mm. And I, and, and in my book, one of the things that I am proud of, what took a lot of effort and, but what I'm proud of is that I also acknowledge the privilege and influence that I have as an Indian woman, as an Asian immigrant to this country who was able to enter this country with socioeconomic privilege, with education privilege. I do know that when I am unfortunately pitted in white supremacist organizations against my black woman colleague, I do know I have privilege in that situation and I need to use it wisely. So how do you use it? Tell me that. What what would you do in that circumstance? I name it. Mm. I I try really hard to name it. You know, when I have heard, when I have heard pushback, like, oh, Ruchika, you know, it's really great to work with you. Unlike so-and-so, you know, she's, she's often, you know, she's a lot more difficult to work with. I've heard this uh, against a black woman colleague and I've literally, you know, I do the why I I go, I, I ask the six or 10 why's I'm like, but why do you say that? But why, you know, but for what reason? Give me, give me an example. Mm. Are you sure? you know, that sounds a bit like, that sounds biased to me, right? Is that, is that bias? It's, it is, it's uncomfortable. And I also acknowledge that for myself as a woman of color, as an immigrant woman of color, it's not like I always have the ability to do that, but where I do, my God, I try and use it. Hmm. 
That's so important to name it because I, I, I'm working on a book and I'm naming fears. We have all these different fears and I'm just giving them all names because yes. <laughs> uh, fear is just like one big blob of emotion. And it's like, no, that's mm. fear of rejection. That is what that is, is what you're feeling is yeah. fear of feeling lonely. And, and my writing coach, she's like, do you realize that by naming things, it's like step one in the process of healing, because now that yeah. you have identified what is actually at stake or at hand, you can do things with it. You know what to, you know what you're working with. It's amazing. And Farnoosh, I'm so glad you're writing this book and, you know, really doubling down on the money aspect of this. I think another way that we can show real advocacy, really standing in solidarity with each other. And especially for, again, the white men and women listening to this podcast is talking about money. Yeah. And I try really hard to talk about money in the circles where I have influence and privilege. Now I'm definitely not at a place I, I want to get there and I'm trying hard to get to a place where I can one day put all my rates out and just say, this is what I charge and you better go and charge that as well. At this point, I'm still building things. I'm, I, that is my aspiration. I'm saying it here. This is the first time I'm saying it and I hope it comes oh, true. Oh, well, what a place to manifest. <laughs> Thank what you. a place from your yeah. lips to the So Money audience ears. It's going to happen. I really hope so because I really want to get to that stage where we can openly discuss what's going on. But to give you an example of using the privilege and influence I have, if I'm asked to speak at a, you know, a, a well-known organization and they're like, who else would you refer? When I make that reference, I will always say to that person, Hey, this is how much I charge. Please make sure you do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And as much as I possibly can, I mean, I had this, I had this tweet, which kind of went viral last week. Right. Which is essentially like, um, it was I'm like, I'm like, what did it even say? Because the last week has been insane since the book came out, <laughs> but it's, essentially it was something along the lines of, um, you know, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, I, I'm afraid I can't do the speaking engagement unpaid because I need to push back against the labor that women of color, unpaid labor that women of color are so often expected to do. And obviously I did not hear back from this place. Um, but I, as much as I possibly can lay that pathway out for, especially the women coming, you know, both alongside me, but especially the ones coming after me, I really want to make sure that they don't have to have these uncomfortable conversations. Well, thank you so much. That is, uh, you know, it's, it's not always obvious that that is what you should do, but it's important. It's so important. And thank you for, for reminding us all to be these quiet advocates, really be these behind the scenes advocates. I, there was an episode that I remember we talked about this scarcity mindset that often we are raised as women, like, okay, we, we can't help each other out because there's only one seat at the table. They've only opened one seat at the table, if that. And so there's this fear of scarcity that if I help another woman, that is a zero sum game. I am getting nothing. She's getting all of it. I think what you just said speaks to the fact that that, that is so untrue and like a, a rising tide does lift all boats. I, so a couple of thoughts on that. Yes. And I think again, that narrative of women's scarcity mindset. I remember when I wrote my first book on gender equity, and even now when I'm asked to speak, I often get asked to, to address the fact that women don't help each other. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about because <laughs> I have had a lot of help from women. Indeed, I have also had a lot of 
times where I did not get the support I needed, but I choose to look at the times I did get the support. So for me, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And on top of that, I think what's really important is, again, a systemic issue. If you are only shown that there's room for one woman at the top, what are you going to do? You're going to have your sharp elbows out. And that is not the future that I want to try and create. Um, and, and I think lastly, you know, the, these messages can be really harmful because imagine the type of world we could build when we collaborate, mm-hmm. right? And And the reality is, if we do not widen the path for others, we're actually, in many ways, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. I'll give you an example. Um, I wrote an op-ed about how uh, publishing advances in the publishing industry, book publishing, I'm sure you went mm-hmm. through this whole process, Arnish, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, they can be really, really racist, right? And there's a real racial pay gap between what women make and what men make in advances what and, and what people of color make and white authors make when it comes to these publishing advances. And for me, part of the frustration absolutely is like whoever gets a higher advance, they're obviously their publisher is going to take a bigger chance in them. They're like, okay, well, we're going to put all our best marketing folks on you and we're going to do all the publicity. We're going to get you, you know, time with Oprah. And for, for people of color authors, for authors of color, that's usually not the case. Right. So that's been really, that that's, that's bad for you sure as an individual. But what that does is it also creates this sort of runway where authors of color after you are also treated in the same way, right? And if for when authors of color get a high advance, when we do get that, we believe in you, we think you can do really well, we're going to put all our resources behind you, then other authors of color also hopefully get that same level of we believe in you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so for me, I think that there's a lot of work that we can do together because really we truly all rise when, when that happens. Ruchika Tolshin, thank you so much. I can't believe the half hour is up already, but um, what? <laughs> I want you back. Can you come back? Oh, I would be delighted, but more than anything, I'm so excited for your book. Oh, Whatever thank you. I well, do, to, to, <laughs> thank you. down the road someday next year, I will be knocking on your door, hoping to get all your advice on how to uh, spread the word about a book. But everybody in the meantime, please consider purchasing Ruchika's book, Inclusion on Purpose, an Intersectional Approach to Creating a Culture of Belonging at Work. Thank you. Thank you, Farnoosh. Thanks so much to Rachika for joining us. Her book again is called Inclusion on Purpose, available everywhere. See you back here on Wednesday when our guest will be Christina Blacken. She is the founder of The New Quo, a leadership development and equity consultancy. She's going to walk us through narrative intelligence, a tool that can actually help us rewrite our money stories and get closer to our financial goals. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day is so money. money.